This podcast is for information purposes only and is not and should not be construed as professional advice or an offer or commitment by any Rabobank group member to enter into a transaction. The views expressed by the presenter and or guest are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Rabobank. Please see the podcast description for our full disclaimer. Welcome to Rabo Talks Growing Our Future, where we talk to experts from both here in New Zealand and across the world to bring New Zealand farmers and growers the information they need to make informed strategic decisions about the future direction of their business to ensure they continue to thrive in a fast-changing world. Fonterra is the world's largest exporter of dairy products and China is their largest buyer. I'm your host this week, Katie Rodwell, and in today's episode, we talk with James Robertson, Trade Strategy Manager for Asia, based in Shanghai. As the youngest ever winner of the Young Farmer of the Year, James has come a long way in only a few years. He shares his view on the dynamic Asian market, the opportunities and challenges that it presents, and the future of the New Zealand dairy industry. It's a fascinating discussion and I learned so much, so I'm sure you'll love it. James, lovely to have you here today with us. We always like to start with a bit of an intro from our guests, some insight into who you are and your career to date. Ah, thanks, Katie. It's great to be on the show today. A bit of background about myself. I was quite lucky to grow up in the uh, lovely green pastures of the Waikato near Mystery Creek, was where my family's dairy farm was. So grew up on the family dairy farm and then after leaving high school, decided to go down to Massey University in Palmerston North, where I studied a Bachelor of Agri-Commerce majoring in farm management and international agribusiness uh, before starting my career at Fonterra. Nice. And did you know, like, leaving the farm and then going to uni, did you always envisage a career in agribusiness? Or were you kind of thinking you might go farming? Or what was your thinking there? Farming was always on the cards, I think. I went to a school in in town, Hamilton Boys High School, and a lot of sort of my friends or classmates were all leaving school to become doctors and lawyers and accountants. And there was me just wanting to wear my gumboots and go farming. So it was probably the the influence of my friends going to university that, that really triggered me down that pathway. And then, yeah, once at university, you sort of really realise some of the wider opportunities. And so for me, farming's always there as a, a great option and, and potentially a pathway going forward, but a chance to just take some risk and, and do something different has, has probably led to where I am today. And geographically, can you tell us where you are today? Yeah, based in Shanghai. I've been living in China now for just over 18 months, so completely different experience. I think I found it a culture shock moving to Auckland uh, for work initially. (laughs) So you can imagine what sort of culture shock it was moving to Shanghai. Uh, Amazing market, completely different place. You walk out on the street and and you're sort of the one that stands out as the person different. So Mm. completely different to uh, growing up in rural New Zealand. What do you do on your weekends? Like when you're not working, what do you sort of tend to do over there just out of interest? We usually try and travel China's an amazing place, so geographically diverse. So you're usually trying to get away once every two or three weekends. Otherwise, um, there's quite a cool community here where we play touch rugby on the weekends. There's almost too much to do amongst the uh, the local and expat community. So always lots going on, sports, but travel is definitely the highlight. 
Yeah, make the most of it while you're there, eh? Now, before we kind of kick into your role at Fonterra and sort of what you do, I was quite keen to talk about the fact that you were the youngest ever winner of Young Farmer of the Year, and we've had a few other winners on on the podcast before, but just interested in how that experience at such a young age impacted your career and your personal growth in terms of kind of where you wanted to go. Yeah, I probably missed that off my uh, background. It's not so relevant here in China when you tell people about being the uh, the young farmer of the year. They they tend to ask you 101 <laughs> questions. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. For me, it was oh, I'd always watched the competition growing up when it was on television, and I remember sort of being on the farm working on the weekends or for for neighbouring farms, being like, oh, it's just impossible to test yourself against someone else. How do you know you're you're good or not? And um, for me, that was the the Young Farmer of the Year competition. So I think I first started competing in sort of the senior levels when I was had just turned 16. Um, wow. That was sort of the minimum minimum age. I remember I had to turning up with my learner's driver's license <laughs> to prove I was 16 so I could drive the, the tractor and the quad bike on, oh, on this farm. Um, no beers for you then. <laughs> no, no. I had to get uh, mum and dad to, to pick me up and drop me off. So yeah, it was it was quite different but had always had my sights on competing in the, the grand final and was yeah, lucky enough to take it out at uh, quite a young age. And, and for me, it had been something I've been working on for a long period of time. Created a, a great platform for yeah, exposure and networking, unlocked a lot of doors and, and created a lot of sink or swim opportunities, which um, is quite hard to get, I suppose, early on in your career and has just sort of ran with it, taken the opportunity, said yes to too many things and um, have really enjoyed the ride. Amazing. So maybe we'll dive into some of those sink and swim kind of opportunities as as we go. But just for context, so you're a trade strategy manager for Fonterra in Asia. What does that mean? And what, what does like a typical day look like for you? Yeah, so probably it's quite an interesting role to explain. But if you think about Fonterra as a business or, or many New Zealand businesses uh, or agribusinesses focused on export into the world and around the region. And so for us, having market access and key stakeholder relationships within the regions is, is really important. So a lot of my role is, is working with all of our non-customer stakeholders. So industry associations, government stakeholders across Southeast Asia, North Asia, so Japan and Korea as well as into China. So yeah, a really interesting role, completely diverse group of stakeholders. If there's bad news going out of the newspaper or challenges, I'm usually um, in there somewhere trying to sort things out. And if there's good news, hopefully there's good news. It's usually a project that we've been working on for a long period of time to try and execute. And excuse my ignorance, but I presume you speak fluent Mandarin? No, no, what a Zhongwen Buhao. I only started learning uh, Mandarin when I moved up to Shanghai. So okay. it's been a very, very steep learning curve. I remember I learned Chinese at school for like half a term as a way to try and get out of doing French. And it was just <laughs> like incredibly hard, like, let alone, you know, learning the characters, let alone the language. And so hats off to you. How are you finding it? It is difficult, although I think the one saving grace is just how receptive the Chinese are to foreigners learning their language or or even turning up, well, I'm turning up in their country as a foreigner not, not knowing their language and they're always very receptive, supportive of, of me trying to practice or learn. Makes it a wee bit more enjoyable. What do you see being kind of key cultural differences between Asia and New Zealand in terms of like marketing Fonterra products to the Asian market? The first sort of realization that you get quite quickly when you move up and start living in in Asia is that New Zealand, yeah, our closest neighbours Australia, but both New Zealand and Australia are the odd ones out 
in the region. We sit within the the Asia Pacific, but culturally we're we're sort of the most different of all, which um, was a really good, interesting reflection after moving up into China and, and working a lot with Southeast Asia. And then the other sort of real strong reflection is that we talk about Asia as sort of one region, but every country is is completely different, completely different cultures, languages, tastes and preference of products, uh, different stages of economic development, and just how sort of dangerous or or easy it can be to sort of lump those markets together. Similar, like someone calling like Aussies and Kiwis the same kind of thing. Oh, exactly. We, we get offended, right? Especially after the rugby results, we should be prioritised. But yeah. um, it's the same within the Asia region, probably even more culturally different than Kiwis and Australians. When you compare, say, Japan to uh, Indonesia, that sort of gap or difference is much more than Aussies or Kiwis. So that's fascinating. And so for a business like us, as a global company or a global cooperative, it's really about how do you take your your global strengths, but really localize in each of those markets and tailor products and marketing to suit those specific consumers within that specific market, which creates a bit more of a challenge, I think, for your teams or your management, but in terms of performance on the ground and and selling products that customers or consumers feel that they want, it's um, really important. So how do you do that? Like, is that part of your role? Do you communicate back to Fonterra to say, you know, from a marketing perspective, we need more of this and less of that? Or how do you do that with such diverse needs in those markets? Like, do you have people in all of those markets or how does that actually work? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So we've got teams in each of the different markets that are responsible for marketing product, new product development, watching trends, etc. And even in some markets, we will have uh, manufacturing or, or repackaging assets. So Malaysia, we've got two manufacturing sites that take our amazing New Zealand ingredients, combine them with sort of local Malaysian products, other carbohydrates from across the region, and turn them into consumer products for the Malaysian market. So it's how do you take the best of New Zealand and combine and tailor that to suit local consumer needs. So yeah, even in China, we've got a team of around about 600 staff, predominantly local staff, that is all here focused on the China market. So yeah, it's completely different between each of the regions and, and countries. Yeah, Okay. Amazing. Um, In terms of new opportunities, and now I'm conscious I've sort of lumped Asian dairy market as just as as a group as we've just talked about, but what do you see coming from the kind of Asia dairy market in the coming years? The fascinating part about the Asia region in regards to dairy is most Asian countries don't have dairy in their sort of traditional cuisine or or foods. Probably India is an exception and and parts of northern China and Mongolia or or Mongolia have used dairy for a long period of time. But for the rest, dairy is is quite new in their diets and in their use. So you think of markets like Indonesia, it's got a population of around 270 million people of which their dairy consumption is only going to go one way. That's going to increase as the the country becomes more wealthy. Um, You typically see consumers looking to eat or drink more dairy products. Dairy is is held in a very high regard in terms of its sort of nutritional qualities, proteins, even fats. So for me, I think the real opportunity is, is a fantastic base in terms of population that's growing within Asia. Economically, it's becoming more developed. Consumers are slowly becoming more wealthy, and that creates opportunity for dairy. Whereas comparing it to other markets, uh, dairy is common, and it's a bit more of a competitive landscape, but it means that the market's established. So for Asia, I think it's a growing demand pool for us, for sure. Wow, that's so interesting because... 
you don't think about the fact, you know, like milk, as an example, seems so like a basic staple in cheese. But, you know, for, for some of those markets, it just isn't. Yeah, and, and even products like cheese, the cheese that we consume here in China is, is very different to the cheese that you find on the supermarket shelves in New Zealand. I much prefer the cheese I eat at home in NZ versus uh, some of the weird and wacky products we have up here in China. What is the Chinese cheese like? A lot more um, what you call processed cheese, so sort of slice like baby ons. bell kind of. Yeah, similar-ish, or cream cheese-based products, oh, so yeah. it's slightly sweeter. We were doing some new product development recently, and I tried a saltless cheddar, which I don't know if you've ever eaten cheese that has limited salt in it, but this one was next to nothing, and I took it home, actually sprinkled salt back on it just to make it taste, <laughs> taste like normal. Um, so wow. there's products like that that Chinese consumers see as, as new, trendy. They don't have that baseline of, of what a one kilogram block of tasty uh, mainland cheese mm. tastes like in New Zealand. Their palate is, is completely different. So it's creating new new opportunities in, in a market that's, that is huge. Mm. That's interesting because, I mean, obviously with the, the recent – changes in the dairy market here in New Zealand, you know, there's lots of commentary about the risk of our reliance on that Chinese market and them being such a a big player of ours from an export perspective. And I'm always like, I think we should have, you know, have a China end kind of strategy, which I mean, we do, but I feel like it could be stronger. But then hearing you talk about the amazing amount of growth that there is to have there, it's quite interesting. Yeah, and, and we as a business are, are conscious of the risk that China poses in terms of about a third of our product comes up here to the market. But as a cooperative, we export to around about 120 different markets around the globe. China is the world's largest importer of dairy products, um, which means you you can't shy away from that. It creates some fantastic opportunities and, and is a growing market. So for us, it, it is a case of, of growing China as well as growing our other markets and other regions. And yeah, I think China is going to continue to grow with some of the trends around urbanisation. Yeah, again, sort of rising middle income within China. Lots of challenges you'll read in the newspaper at the moment about the property market reaching peak population. What does that mean for the economy? But sort of for that food and beverage space, I think the opportunities are, are fantastic. Um, and as a New Zealand exporter that has good market access up into the world's second largest economy. China's always going to be an important market for New Zealand, but also for many exporters. Mm. And is sustainability topical over there from a consumer perspective? From a consumer's perspective, we've probably seen a lot of change in the last two or, or three years. But I would say from a, a Chinese consumer perspective, they're still at that stage of, well, what does sustainability mean for me? Um, what's the tangible benefit for me? Whereas other parts of the world, you sort of understand the, the collective sustainability is a, a we story. And China will move very quickly, I think. They've set some targets around peaking their carbon emissions by 2030 and then reaching net zero or carbon neutrality by 2060. So that timeline's a little bit further out than some of the targets set by other countries around the world. But you, you come to a city like Shanghai, which 10 years ago had a, a really bad pollution problem, and you walk around the streets at the moment, and every second car is an electric vehicle, and the pollution problem has been improved significantly from what it was. And so China will move very quickly when it has a pathway to do that, and consumer adoption tends to be very quick if they can see the benefit for themselves. I think the unique part for New Zealand dairy, and is something that we do here in the market, 
is try to link that sustainability story to sort of a grass-fed or a pasture natural-based farming system, which the Chinese consumer sort of reflects on, well, what's good for the cow? Is that good for me? Good for my family? Good for milk? Good for nutrition? Even the link between organic pricing in the market tends to be at a premium. And for consumers here, the link is, well, that means that there's no sort of added chemicals in the supply chain, which means the product is good for me. I will pay a premium. Whereas in other markets, you look at organic and it's the environmental story, whereas Chinese consumers tend to view it through a different lens. Mm, Quite a lot about like food safety and stuff too. Yeah, food safety is still very much paramount. It has to be number one. If you can't meet that, then you're going to have some challenges here in the market. So I think that's where New Zealand's biggest asset is. We're seen as clean, green and safe. And that's something that we probably take for granted, but it gives us a good foothold or or strong position in the market. And so in your position over in Shanghai, looking back at, at New Zealand and our market, is there anything that you think that we should be doing more of or less of or kind of insights that you'd think, man, like if every New Zealand farmer would know this, it would help with their mindset or how they think about things? Completely. I think New Zealand's biggest asset in many respects to farming is the fact that we're uh, geographically isolated from the rest of the world. So when we grow grass all year round, limited pests and disease, which is great for food production, but it creates a real challenge for connecting one, our consumers to our farmers, and then two, our farmers to our consumers. So you speak to consumers on the street here and and tell them you're from New Zealand, uh, you come from a dairy farm, they're fascinated, absolutely fascinated. You pull out your phone and show them a sort of picture of the farm that you're on when you visited home last, and they're sort of, their jaw drops, and they say, I'd love to visit New Zealand, such an amazing place. And for our farmers to be able to hear and experience that, there's nothing more sort of rewarding or satisfying. And at the same time, being able to to travel up to a market like China where a third of our milk ends up, to be able to see the sort of anchor milk product on the billboard or seeing it as a premium price in the supermarket, I think is a, a really rewarding experience. So finding that way to, to bottle up the consumer and, and send it back to New Zealand, but also bottle up the farmer and, and bring them to the market, I think um, would be really rewarding. Mm, okay. In terms of regulatory market in China, is it changing at all? And, and if so, like what impact will that have on Fonterra's ability to market and sort of succeed with milk products in the country? The regulatory environment in China has been changing. You can sort of reflect back to, I think it was 2008, there were some pretty widely publicised milk safety issues and quite tragic ones in the infant formula space from the domestic dairy market here in China. And so that led to a lot of Chinese consumers really trusting imported brands because, again, they knew it was food safe, food quality. You could probably have just slapped a Made in New Zealand Silver Fern logo on a product sent it to China and consumers knew it was good, safe, and they would buy it. And so China's gone through or going through a stage now of of really improving its domestic regulation. We've seen it probably first and foremost in the infant formula space, a crucial industry, right, where you're feeding babies. And so China is is putting in its own regulations, own standards, which results in sort of change or complexity, audit processes, which both the domestic suppliers have to meet, but also your international suppliers. Any change causes uncertainty. 
But I think the challenge for importers or exporters into the market is China is just one of many markets that you supply. Whereas for a domestic player, China is your predominant focus. So for them, it's yes, this is our domestic regulation. This is what we've got to meet. If we don't, then we we lose our business, our whole business. And for exporters in, it's again, how do you diversify? China is one of many and, and now we've got to meet not just the China regulation, but everything else. So it adds complexity. And I can see that sort of change trending over time. There's more and more trust building up within the local dairy industry here and and regulation plays a key part behind some of that. And in terms of what you see as being, I mean, we've we've touched on it a little bit around opportunities, but what what do you see as being some of the biggest opportunities for us as an exporting country moving forward and maybe some of the biggest challenges? I think for us to be able to get out into market and and really tell our or continue to tell our story, everyone says we need to tell our our story better. But I think part of it is, is we have a lot to be proud of. So we've got to have that confidence to be able to tell the consumers that because if we don't tell it, someone else is going to take the airspace from us. And when you look out to sort of 2050, I think a lot of our challenges at the moment in headspace is really focused on sort of climate impacts, what's happening in the farming space for dairy and what is methane? How do we solve the methane challenge? And I'm hoping by by 2050, all of the investment that's been put into sort of mitigants has paid off and, and we've reached carbon zero. Imagine that point of time when you haven't got this sort of headspace thinking about climate zero, etc. What does that mean for our farmers? What an amazing opportunity to be selling natural grown, pasture-raised dairy or beef or, or horticultural products to some of the most uh, discerning consumers around the world. That's probably what excites me the most. But I think it requires us to build that link closer between the consumer and the farmer because it's beneficial for both. And I guess, you know, part of the work that we're doing around farm plans and kind of that transparency helps with giving evidence to that story. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, all of the the farm plans and the data that gets collected all helps with verification up in market both for proving claims, but also for regulatory requirements. So it all serves a purpose and is yeah, really useful for actually validating that story that, that we're telling here in the marketplace. Because mm, I think that's quite important to communicate that message back to like our New Zealand farmers and growers because it's often looked at from a regulatory perspective here in New Zealand, as in we need to do this because the government's telling us versus it's a really important part of what the market is going to need to see to be able to feel confident in purchasing products in the future. Oh, exactly right. And yeah, our customers, our consumers, the supermarkets in different countries are requiring a range of levels of information of which what's being collected on farm and and through the supply chain is is used for. So it is quite easy to think, well, look, all of this requirements is for domestic regulatory requirements in New Zealand. Yes, it serves that purpose, but it also unlocks or saves or allows us to verify, validate and prove a lot of claims around the world. Mm. We've sort of touched on this, but I always like to ask my guests, what do you think our food and fibre sector is going to look like in 2050 if we come back to New Zealand? Or even actually from your perspective over there, what do you reckon it's going to look like? Yeah, I love to look forward into the future to think, well, what does New Zealand's farming sector really look like? What does consumers' perception of New Zealand look like? I hope that consumers' perceptions around the world 
doesn't change because everyone views New Zealand so strongly and is so proud about our country, even though many haven't had the chance to visit. What I really hope that we can achieve by 2050 is that every consumer that consumes a New Zealand product feels as though they have a link or knows a person or can see a face or is connected to a farmer in New Zealand. So we can personalise that story beyond being a New Zealand as a country to actually, I know about this one farm and the way that they farm and, and the stories they tell, sort of the equivalent of everyone in every market having seen a, a country calendar type uh, yeah. episode on a, on a farm that they consume that milk. And every time they, they buy that milk, they link that back to that one farmer or the story that they know. I think through the use of yeah, digital, the fact that we can have a call and record a podcast today between China and New Zealand just shows the fact that the technology is improving and, and getting there. So how does that become possible? Who knows? Virtual reality, you scan a code on a product and you can see the cows being milked or a live stream of mm. the farm paddock and the blue skies. That's sort of where I see, would love to see the future going because New Zealand's got a great story to tell. If you could put every consumer on a farm in New Zealand for a day, you'd have a customer for life. And that's what we should be really proud of. Yeah, love that, having sort of pride in what we're doing because it can be at times a bit downbeat. So it's really nice to be able to hear like how um, well recognised and how appreciated the New Zealand sort of story is over there. Before we wrap up, James, do you have any key messages or takeaways for New Zealand farmers and growers? Ooh, I would say when you when you look to book your next holiday, potentially overseas, you know, have a think to go, well, yeah, where are the markets that my products are ending up? Could it be an opportunity to uh, do a small little business trip to have a have a view of where where my milk products are going? Don't be afraid to reach out to your uh, your cooperatives or your companies that you're supplying to find out yeah where their office might be based because yeah again we we love to host, love to see our farmers and connect them with our teams so use that opportunity if you're ever offshore. I should have said I needed to fly to Shanghai to do this podcast and I could have come over. I could have pretended the uh, internet wouldn't work or something, Kate, and <laughs> we could have made it happen, I'm sure. <laughs> um, James, where would you suggest, like, where's good to holiday over there? Like if you were, like if someone seriously was like, oh, that's quite a good idea, where's some of the cool places you've been to that you'd recommend? China's a fantastic place to visit. Well, to be honest, anywhere within within the Asia region, I think, is, is unique and diverse. Yeah, places like Thailand are great for a beach holiday, but also you'll you'll see your anchor products on the shelf or in the restaurant or in the hotel that you're dining or, or staying at. Anywhere from Malaysia, yeah, Indonesia, even into Vietnam, amazing places to go and visit. Uh, Singapore again. So chances like that anywhere you go. Where's your favourite place? Oh, I would say we've done a lot of travel here in China. My favourite place so far has been in the northeast, south of Russia and north of North Korea. A very wow. interesting place, freezing cold in the winter months. But we went skiing up there for Christmas last year and I didn't know that it could either get that cold or, or that China had ski fields. So um, a great experience. Yeah, I didn't know that. You should, should Google the place, a place called um, Harbin, H-A-R-B-I-N. They have an amazing snow festival. It would um, blows your mind. Something yeah, out of this world. Very cool, James. Um, thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating having a discussion with you, just to hear different perspectives around both physical and kind of cultural differences in the in the wider Asia market. So, really appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure, and I'm sure our listeners will gain heaps from this. And and maybe I'll book a trip to China. 
yeah, we'll hopefully see you soon, Katie, and, and maybe even some of you listeners. But yeah, everyone should be proud of, of what we're doing in New Zealand. Everyone overseas really appreciates and, and has holds high regard of New Zealand and the way that we farm. So really hope that we can keep it up, stay positive and, and look forward to the future. Thank you for listening to Rabo Talk's Growing Our Future podcast. If you're interested in learning more about how Rabobank can support you to succeed into the future, please go to rabobank.co.nz.